Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1932 film Scarface. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Barrett, uh, I want to open with a question which you answered for me right before we started recording, which is what is your history with this film? And I'm surprised to hear the answer to this. Yeah, it's a very recent history. I just watched the film a couple weeks ago for the first time. I've always known about it by reputation, um, but I have to confess of the of the big three gangster films in 31 and 32, I had only seen The Public Enemy. I had not seen Scarface and I had not seen Little Caesar. So, Well, this is, this is interesting to me um, because I as well... For I've known about this movie for a long time. This is a movie that gets referenced a lot whenever anybody brings up the production code. It's like, you know, that 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 you hear those three movies, Public Enemies, Scarface, and Little Caesar, right? As are the three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and uh so like so that's kind of the only thing I knew about it. And I knew so I knew that like this is a movie where the the critique of it at the you know coming out of this was that it you know potentially glorifies violence and crime and these things but other than that i didn't really have a sense of what to expect so because you just saw this recently and you obviously had heard about this movie for a long time what was your first impression upon watching it well that's a good question sam because um as i said i watched it along with the other three um and i immediately felt that this was a much more uh complex film um yeah, I, I think it's a film with a lot of nuances to it, which is not true of Little Caesar and less true of The Public Enemy. And then the other thing I noticed was how how much of a Howard Hawks film it is. Um, there are, as you know, there are comic touches in this film that uh, to me were pure Howard Hawks. And of course, they're also partly because Ben Hecht is the screenwriter. Uh, he worked with Hawks on several films. Uh, and and Hecht did a lot of some of the best screwball comedies. And so it's like they just couldn't resist the uh, opportunity for a, for a comic turn in, in the film. So I just felt, uh, I just feel there's a, there's a lot going on in, in this film. And so that, that kind of surprised me. It wasn't, um, it wasn't kind of the, the typical cookie cutter actioner I was expecting. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, you know, at one level I was, I was prepared for this to be, important as a little historical document to say okay this was a kind of a turning point i wasn't expecting to like this movie i loved it i thought it was really good um uh so if you if you were waiting for me to love a howard hawks movie you found one like this i thought was i thought this was so much better than i expected it to be it was also oddly it was a little more violent than i expected i was Mm -hmm. surprised i mean when they say you know there's a lot of just pure violence in this movie it's like yep there in fact is a lot you know and this is it's interesting to think about that you know after watching a movie like the godfather which which also has that like this seems to be a movie where where the violence is even more front and center throughout it um uh so, so and, and, and i think kind of in in some interesting ways so um another name that i want to think about uh with this and it's somebody that i i know of but i but maybe you can give a little bit more context to is the uh, the name that's uh, also at the top of this film which is howard hughes is the pro- the producer of this film now i have to say most of my history with howard hughes is seeing martin scorsese's the aviator which i don't know if that's the greatest telling of the story of howard hughes but um i i mean i, I knew him i knew him as like an eccentric you know, late, late in life, Howard Hughes is sort of the eccentric millionaire billionaire. Um, I didn't realize until I saw that movie that he was a movie producer as well. And so um, is, is there a significance to this being a Howard Hughes production? 
Well, uh, yeah, I, I get, yeah. Well, yeah, he was a producer. He actually owned, owned one of the studios for a while. Um, and I think one of the significance is that, that Hughes often kind of ran uh, afoul of, of the production code. Um, most famously in the 40s with Jane Russell in a film called The Outlaw that uh, famously displayed some of her well-known assets and that got, that got Hughes in trouble. So Hughes, uh, yeah, Hughes is a guy who was, he was always kind of pushing the envelope a little bit. And, and he, and it's interesting, he and Hawks had had, um, had actually had a legal set to um, Hughes uh, suit Hawks right before this film. I can't remember why, but somehow they worked it out and managed to manage to work together. So yeah, he was, he was always kind of a force in films in the thirties, the forties, but always kind of on the edge of, of the industry. Um, but at the same time, he did have quite a bit of influence. Um, so we, we, we've mentioned the production code and we've talked about that on previous episodes, but this is, this is maybe the most, one of the more closely related movies to thinking about the code. So maybe we should say a little bit about this here. So the, when this movie came out, the Hayes code was, was already in place, but not the production, the uh, production code administration, which really kind of enforced the Hayes code. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. The, yeah. So when people call thick pictures, pre-code, they're, they're really saying pre-production code because the Hayes code uh, was from uh, 1930 to 34, and then the actual production code comes into place. Um, so the Hayes code was a little um, a little laxer, uh, as you can tell from from this film. Um, as you mentioned, a lot of the violence is really front front and center. Um, so this would have been even more difficult to make after after 1934. So if you kind of compare it with a couple of the other big gangster films of the 30s, my favorite. Actually, it's Angels with Dirty Faces with Jimmy Cagney, um, and then uh, the Roaring Twenties, also with George Raft in '39. Those are kind of th- those five are the five big films. Thanks for home to the thirties, but these three are, are the pre-code. Um, but this movie has its own bouts with uh, with the Hayes Code and with yes. local uh, municipalities. Some states have issues with this. Um, so it was it was very interesting to uh, to read about this. Um, so. There, I noticed. I mean, the first thing you see when this movie starts is there is a, I don't know if it's two or three title cards of kind of preachy warning to you, which is funny because they have that at the beginning, and then the uh, the text of those title cards is basically dialogue in a scene that was added where you have all of these concerned citizens talking to the newspaper men about. Um, I mean, it, it, it. I've watched a lot of. Uh, old educational uh, films that were made. And it feels like they just dropped a scene from an educational film of like all of these kind of proper adults having a conversation about something that, that they see is very important. And it, it's, it's strange because the movie is pretty propulsive and all of a sudden it grinds to a halt for this scene, which is so clearly added after the fact to say, okay, we need to, we need to make this okay for people. <laughs> that's that's that is entirely true sam but at the same time i enjoyed the scene um in, in some ways because um it reminded me actually of the debate in high noon uh in in the church when they're all trying to decide what, what to do uh, about their about their situation so it, and maybe it's because i was i was thinking about it in reference to high noon that i i i didn't see it as completely inorganic um, at the same time, as you said, it's obviously uh, a sop to the censors, uh, and it's obviously highly, highly didactic. But it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's so well played, and in a way, it's played over the top uh, that I didn't. 
it, it, it didn't detach me from the film. It, ke it kept me interested, even though I realized exactly what it was doing uh, at the same time. And that's actually one of the things that I wonder, and you may not know the answer to this, but was the whole news, because there's a runner of the newspaper men throughout the movie. Was all of that added or just that one scene added? Because the other parts seem, had there not been the other scenes with the newspaper folks, that would have seemed stranger. But because we see that, and in fact, the first thing we see with the, the newspaper publisher is basically if it bleeds, it leads, right? He's like, you know, yeah, you got to call this a war because that people are, people are interested in that. So, um, so I assume some of that newspaper stuff was there. And then this was added. What I love is there's almost a point in that scene where, uh, I don't, I don't remember if it's the publisher who's talking, he doesn't do this, but he might as well turn to the camera and say, you know, you're the government and you have a say in this. And that I, I just, I love that it, almost goes to that moment yeah I actually i mean i do think it, it works in the movie but it is it mm -hmm. is it, it does it does sort of i watched this movie twice and the second time through especially it felt like i was really into where this was going and then it's like we're going to take a break to moralize for a second but you're right. i think your, your high noon comparison is right i really do think that's true yeah, I mean, I don't know for sure, Sam, but I, I just think that watching the film and seeing the way that in every other respect, the newspaper is organically uh, part of the plot. And it's a trope as well, right? I mean, it's not unusual in, in, in gangster films to have that kind of relationship with the, with the press, which, which often becomes a way of providing some kind of exposition or information to the audience that otherwise it might be difficult to convey. So yeah, it looks to me like, you know, that's, that's organic. Uh, and then yes, as you said, this newspaper scene, is just plopped in, uh, just like the monologue by the, uh, the police chief is kind of plopped in. Uh, although it's a, it's a brilliant little monologue. I, I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> enjoyed it, even though it was like a soapbox moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now other things that change uh, there, I was reading about this. So what we saw is the original ending, but then yes. there was another ending that was proposed or filmed. I'm not sure. I believe it was actually shot. That's, okay. that's my, that's my understanding that they shot another ending, which is interesting because it kind of foreshadows the ending of uh, angels with uh, dirty faces, where in the ending of that film, the Jimmy Cagney character gets dragged off to the electric chair. And um, because they don't want the kids to admire him, he, he screams and cries as though he's a coward. And they say, oh, he's yellow at the end. Uh, and they kind of do the same thing here with a hang. But in this case, they hang uh, Paul Mooney and they don't show his face. So it's like they try to de-glamorize his death as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And we got more of the, I mean, we do see him sort of pleading for his life here. And then he runs and gets and gets gunned down in a final blaze of sort of glory. <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. Um, then the, other, I guess the, 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 the other thing is that I believe that this, this movie has multiple titles and I think this mm -hmm. was also part of this yes. as well. So, you know, we see this movie as Scarface, but it's also titled Scarface, the shame of the nation or just the shame of the shame nation. Of the nation. <laughs> Um, yes. So, so those are other potential concessions made either to to the code or to local municipalities because this was banned in, like I said, in in, in a couple of states and then several big markets mm -hmm. refused to show this for a while, which it sounds like that almost also helps it a little bit. I mean, I guess any any kind of you know censorship sometimes will help something become. Uh, pique the interest of people in something, right? So, so, so that that helps us a little because it sounds like in some of those places there would be one theater that was 
willing to show this film and then it did very very well there because people wanted to seek this out yeah it's been actually been called one of the most censored of hollywood films um and you know it's it's interesting that it, it didn't take long for films to be around before people started having debates about the moral um effect of films and uh it, you know the moral effect of the, of the media so it's interesting as we've been having this conversation for almost 100 years about whether films affect behavior or not. And it's interesting because last week with The Godfather, you were talking about the ways in which it may, it may be that not, not only did The Godfather reflect mafia culture, but The Godfather may have influenced mafia culture. So that's, that's, been, that's been something that's been around for a long time. And of course, with this film, which is based, despite what Ben Heck says, uh, the screenwriter, which is based on the life of Al Capone. Um, I mean, there are lots of plot similarities that you can pull out of Capone's life and make direct connections between uh, between um, his life and this film. In fact, the uh, the the opening uh, street address at the beginning of the film is actually an address that is associated with Capone. Uh, ben Hecht had met Capone. Uh, Capone had the same kind of scar that uh, Paul Mooney's character has. And supposedly when um, Hecht was writing the screenplay, Capone sent a couple of henchmen to kind of uh, confront him and make sure this wasn't just about Capone. Although at the same time, Capone was flattered by the film. So anyway, Hecht told the henchmen, no, no, this is just kind of a parody based on a pastiche of a whole bunch of different people. And we think Scarface is a cool title. Uh, and supposedly they went away, left him un unmolested. Um, he banged the screenplay out in 11 days, by the, by the way. Well, and what's interesting is I don't know about the effects that this movie has on gangster culture, but its remake in 1983, the Brian De Palma remake Scarface has a huge impact on hip hip hop culture and drug culture. Uh, um, you know, like, like, like that is a very, very popular movie that gets referenced in all these different ways. Um, so, 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 so if this movie doesn't have an influence on, on, sort of uh, a broader subculture, the remake 50 years later definitely does. Yeah. Um, interesting thing also about this is that um, Howard Hughes then pulls this movie and locks it away for decades. And it sounds like it's not until the 70s that it's uh, after Hughes dies that this movie comes back to the, the public. And it's one of the first films that's uh, released on home video. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would just connect that phenomenon with a film we talked about several months ago, that The Rules of the Game, uh, another film that was difficult to see or wasn't seen and yet had a reputation uh, based on its uh, early showings. So, Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I think I, I'm guessing that, you know, this movie gets reintroduced in the late 70s and it sounds like Pacino sees, I presume, sees this and wants to remake it because he's Pacino's one of the the driving forces behind the De Palma Scarface, which we're not going to talk about because I found out you've never seen it. And you know <laughs> what? You're probably okay. Um, I, I, the, the one comment I will make about it is I remember seeing this, I think I, I've only seen it once. It was in the, the late 90s. Um, and my sense was that that was a in lots of ways, movies in the eighties are is a, is kind of a bloated movie. It's 170 minutes long. And what I loved about the Hawks movie is it covers a lot of the same ground in 93 minutes. Like it, like, like he, this is a very efficient movie. A lot happens. A lot happens in scenes or scenes are short and put together. And the other thing that, that Hawks seems great at is montage. Mm -hmm. That it's just like, okay, we're, we see Tony do something once and then, and then it's like cue montage, and we know 
there's been a we just we that tells us that 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 what we just saw has been replicated over and over and over again sort of the you know do it first keep you know uh do it yourself and keep doing it so we we get the impression of like he's keeping doing it because of the the way hawks uses montage probably two or three times in this film which is which is interesting because that that kind of aligns him uh Comante with the machine gun um because the you know the rapid fire machine gun is kind of like a rapid fire montage and and he is all about the um the replication of the acts of violence uh despite what his boss tells him right and he just once he starts rolling he doesn't stop and so he loves machine guns whether he's on the receiving end or the uh the, the, the delivery end yeah there's the great moment when they're getting obliterated in that restaurant and the only thing you get out of tony is oh my goodness they have machine guns you can carry and he's just like can i get one of those like it, it's great it's like he even in that moment he's somebody who sees possibility and he's like oh if i had that this would be over because i like that 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 is i loved that moment um it, speaking of machine guns, there's also the the and the passage of time. There's also the the greatest scene of calendar flipping over I've ever mm-hmm. seen in a movie, because um, it was it was utterly surprising. And it's 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 uh uh you see the calendar flipping over and then sort of dissolved into it is the rapid fire of the machine gun. And with every fire, you see another mm-hmm. page turning over. And again, that that little piece there it's it's the efficiency that little piece there says everything you just saw assume it just kept happening right um and right. i i i, I love that little piece of filmmaking there too yeah as, as, you, as you said as you said a minute ago sam the uh hawks's economy uh is really is really amazing and he, he kind of knows when to when to play a scene out of a ways and then when you said just to kind of condense it because we don't need to see it over and over again we get the we get the idea we know what's going on so he's trusting the audience as well yeah. And, and uh, one of the things I'll say about this movie, um, like we said before watching it, this is a movie that gets referenced in terms of, you know, it is part of the story of the code. One of the things that I wasn't prepared for was just as we're already getting at is the quality of filmmaking. And it this movie announces itself from the first shot. The first shot of this movie is a very, very long tracking shot. When I rewatched it, I had to go back and realize like, it never cuts. It just keeps mm-hmm. from from the opening shot of looking at the uh, the the street signs yeah. until after uh, the janitor leaves after uh, Costello's death is all one long mm-hmm. tracking shot. And it was, I mean, that is that's pretty amazing Bravaro filmmaking. And and like and what's great about it though is it doesn't it's it's subtle enough where it doesn't announce to itself, Hey, we're doing a big tracking shot. It just, you, you watch it and realize this is all one piece and it's moving from the, uh, I noticed it cause uh, the first time I watched it because we moved from the exterior to the interior. And I thought, Oh, that's interesting. He didn't cut there. And then it just keeps going and you even get the murder happening in silhouette, but all of right. that is still part of this, this amazing shot. And, and, and what I love is that scene doesn't really introduce any characters because the the mm-hmm. the one character the two characters of significance in it one of them dies the other one is a person in silhouette who we only learn later who that is right. but it sets up themes to the movie yeah and 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 I and I love the use of the silhouette which we get again later on with the Valentine's Day massacre um and i mean the film is of course in black and white because there were no other choices at the time but still the way hawks makes use of the black and white so that you even have shadows within the shadows of the black of of the black and white it's very 
it's very well shot as well. I think that's really another key element of the film. And there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of visual motifs that he uses again and again. There's the shadows, there's the use of the X uh, for the death scenes. I mean, that's the other part where, that's the other thing that surprised me about the film and that you asked about that. It, that it, it was, I use the dreaded word artistic. I mean, it's really, it really is artistic in, in the way that he sets up those kinds of recurring uh, images. Well, and what's also interesting about uh, about the having the the first shot be done or the first killing be done in silhouette in shadow, essentially off camera, mm-hmm. um, is for a movie that I was going into it, and I, I assume a lot of people seeing it even in 1932 were like, "Oh, this is the big violent movie people are talking about." So the first killing shows such restraint. <laughs> You're like, I, I don't get to see anything. So I'm like, oh, well, maybe this isn't everything that I thought it, this isn't all the things people were worried about. And then later on, it's like, not a worry about restraint. We're going to, we are going to show people torn, torn up, you know, with machine guns and things like that. We're going to get both of those things, but there are key deaths that he doesn't show us, you know, or, or that where the camera moves away. It's like when Gaffney dies, we hear the shots, but we follow the bowling ball instead of seeing him die. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think there, there are certain touches where, he also doesn't give you everything. He holds back a little bit. And I think that stuff's kind of great. Well, it, it, at, the, at the risk of perhaps sounding a, a little too arch or a little too clever, I would also point out that that opening scene literally foreshadows uh, the death of Tony himself, that he is, the, he is the shadowy figure committing the murder, but he will become uh, the victim himself. And so I think it's a, a literal and physical foreshadowing. Um, I also love, I, since you mentioned this already, I just love Gaffney's death scene because that's another scene that has an X beforehand because of the strike. Uh, and then uh, it's not him. It's the, it's the big pin that you see fall, falling down. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's almost playful. I mean, again, that, to me, there's that hawk sensibility. It's almost like, isn't this a funny way to think about showing, showing a death? And so the great thing about it is um, I don't know if he did that because of the code. I doubt that he did, but but I would imagine that the code would often force directors into thinking about how can I show this violence or do I need to show this violence? And so it's again, it's an example. We've talked about this from time to time that sometimes the constraints of the code can actually lead to a more creative filmmaking because you have to think of alternative ways to do what could otherwise be a very sort of straightforward thing. So I like to think that in a sense, the code helped with that, helped with the Valentine's Day massacre. How can we show this violence without getting in in, in trouble? And as a result, you actually end up with something that's a lot more engaging. I mean, often, you know, when things happen off screen, this happens a lot in Shakespeare off stage, Offstage actions engage the audience's imagination and in some ways even make them complicit. Because if, just as we pointed out at the beginning of The Godfather, The Godfather opens with uh, you are in Vito's point of view. In a sense, in that off-screen killing in the bowling alley, you're kind of in Tony's point of view because you're the one watching the pin go down. You're the one responsible for the death. Yeah, and and I, I also think the fact that you don't see the Valentine's Massacre, you don't see... Gaffney, you don't see Lovo, you don't see Costello, it leads you to think, oh, we're probably not going to see Tony's actual death. And then we do, yeah. you know, and it, so, so it's like, he's saving that I'm, he's saving when you see somebody really, really take a machine gun or take it, take, take, take shots. It's going to be this guy mm-hmm. um, that, 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 that he saves that to the very end, which makes that, that ending a little more poignant, right? Because it's like, Oh my goodness. I mean, it's yeah. Yeah. Like I, I really, I think that that, that I really like the way that that's done. Another thing from that opening 
um, that I that I love is the, the things that the thing that Costello is talking about. Um, and he's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to make out. So it was helpful to have closed captioning on because I because there's a lot going on and I and, and I realize oh he's saying something very important. So because what he's saying to the other guys is actually two he says two things. The first thing he says is that basically a man needs to know when he has enough. Right. So we think of Costello is represents kind of the old guard. Right. And even the newspaper man talks about like he's the he's the last of kind of the old gang leaders to die. And what he's talking about is is kind of this sense of like, um, I don't need to have everything I have. I have enough. And that's what that's what people need to learn. A man needs to know when he has enough. At the same time, he's talking about the party next week. And it's like there's going to be more. There's going to be. So he's kind of saying both of those things. But but I think though that is setting up a theme, this theme of like uh, kind of this theme of excess you know, and like that, that is a kind of downfall and it's very subtly said. And you could just think that is generic conversation to set up this, that they're having after this party. And then this guy dies, but he's actually laying out a theme of the film right there as well. Yeah. And, and one, and one of the things that he says uh, in that, in that uh, scene is he feels he's, he feels like he's on top of the world. So we're going to come back to that phrase next week. I'll let you know about that later. Um, but it's interesting that there's that neon sign, right? The world is yours which we see after Johnny's death. And then, and then you see it from Camonte's apartment. So you're right. There's, there's this notion that um, uh, excess is what drives uh, the, 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 the gangster. And, you know, one of the things that Tony keeps asking, uh, especially in the first half of the film, anytime he sees something, he wants to know, is it expensive? And, uh, and he talks about, you know, he's going to, he buys all these shirts and he's not, he's only going to wear them once and then, and then throw them away. So the, this is another. This is another uh, way in which I would align this film, and to a certain extent, a lot of gangster films, to the American dream. You know, because the the gangster film, in a sense, you could say, is the dark side of the American dream, the basement side of the uh, uh, floor of the American dream. Because we are told as Americans that it's important to work hard and get ahead. It's important to be successful. It's important to make money. The it's important to uh, to be uh, in charge of things. And these are all the things that the gangsters do, but the gangsters expose, right? The, they, they expose the seedy side of, the, of, that, of that ambition. It's only that, it's only that ambition just pushed a little, a, a little bit too far. And that's a, that's a pretty familiar uh, theme in, in, in the films like this. And I think it's one of the reasons why the films are challenging to the censors because it might give people the wrong idea. I mean, think about, think about to go back to another film noir, think about Walter Neff, right? The guy in, um, double indemnity who he can very easily switch from being on the right side of the law to being on the wrong side of the law, but it's really kind of the same goal, right? It's still about the insurance game. And so this is, uh, these uh, uh, gangsters, they're businessmen, but they are doing a different, it's the upside down side of business, if you will. Yeah, no. And, and even the idea of like the, the, you know, Tony's motto, do it first, do it yourself and keep on doing it. That's not inherently a gangster motto. Like, no, that, no. That, that, that's actually pretty good advice for like a person who has a dream about this business they want to start. It's like, do it first, be, be, be the innovator, do it yourself, like be hands-on and then keep doing that thing that you do well. Like you could spin that in one way, or you could think about that in terms of like killing, right? Like, like, you know, there, there is this, this, you know, you, you could think about it that way. Um, I also love the scene. Oh, no, so let me just, let me just, uh, in terms of thinking about the shape of this movie, I love that we get introduced to the cops, but it's very clear. Like this is not going to be a movie about them. They are, 
minor characters around here. The other thing I like about it is that this is not a movie about Tony as a person who like has a fall from grace. Mm-hmm. The, the very before we meet him, he we we see him kill someone. So it's like he's already a killer, right? Yeah, yeah. So 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 then it's just like, well, what is what? It's sort of about kind of what, like you said, what is his dream? And I love that after meeting with Lovo, he's sitting in the car with Ronaldo, and uh, and and he says to him, "Who is Lovo? Just someone a little smarter than Big Louie." Mm. He's like, you know, he's just like like. So from the very beginning, it's like he has his mission statement as well. You, it, it's not like Lovo has to betray him. He's already decided, I am not. I mean, I'm impressed by Lovo's expensive stuff, and I'm impressed by Lovo's girl. But you know what? I got ideas, and I'm. I mean, I have to think what he says to what he says to Ronaldo. So, so I, I think that's that's just really really interesting. And then I love the way that he. Like you say, he kind of builds out his world of like what he thinks success is. And, and the first couple times he's trying to impress Poppy, I love her responses. Like he shows his jewelry and she says, it's kind of effeminate. And he clearly doesn't know what that means. Or when he shows him, shows her his apartment, she says, it's kind of gaudy. And he says, ain't it like, it's like to him, it's like, okay, that's a compliment. Right. And, you know, so, and, and uh, so, so we get this sense that like, but he keeps going with this, right? Like, to have Angelo as his secretary, that's like a kind of status thing. Yeah, yeah, Even though exactly. Angelo is completely unfit to be a secretary, but he gives Angelo advice. He says, you know, this is why you need an education, right? It's like, it's like he wants Angelo to be Tom Hagen. It's just Angelo's not. Tom <laughs> right. Yeah. The other, the other malapropism I love is he talks about the writ of hocus pocus. Yes. Um, which, which of course is, is, is unintentionally quite insightful because that's exactly mm. what it does. It is a kind of magic, get out of card, get out of jail free. Yeah. And, and of course the, the whole thing with the secretary, that's the, that's the Hawks um, humorous touch that I was talking about earlier. And, and, and Hawks, I mean, he takes a big chance because you get two scenes with the secretary in the phone. Um, and the first scene is played just purely for laughs. But the second scene is part of the denouement and, and, and he's about to die and he still pulls off. He, he finally gets the message right. Um, and I just think that was very daring of, of Hawks and it really worked. And it also it also makes me feel, Sam, as if the, the censors didn't know how to watch a movie. I mean, how, I mean, I, I mean, how can you watch that and not see that the film is itself deflating these these figures that they're not glorifying them in, 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 in any way? Um, the other thing I want to say about the ambition is that, again, that's one more thing that was modeled on Capone. Capone did kill his own boss in 1920. And so it's, it's, uh, the script has really taken so much, so much from life in, in that respect. All right. Before we move on from Tony's dream of success, we have to talk about what might be my favorite thing in this movie, which is Tony at the theater. Oh, yes. Sort of Tony as theater critic, but, but there is this sense that they're all, they have front row seats to the theater and they, you know, at intermission, they go out to have a smoke and they're having this conversation about the characters in the play. And I got to say, this is the most Quentin Tarantino moment of this movie mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, we're going to take a break and we're going to realize Tony actually cares about Sadie and what choice she's going to make to the point where when they go to kill the big bad left Gaffney, that he's keep, he says, Angelo, you have to stay here because I need to know what happens to Sadie. <laughs> that, I mean, that is that is right out of a Tarantino script. Like it is, it's yeah. perfect. I love, but it is this sense of like, and they're having even this this conversation between like, 
should we like like angelo's like i i like comedy and tony's like no no drama that's like that is the thing that's a sign of like class you know that we're going to this dramatic play um i i thought that was such a brilliant little little piece in there and it's also very very funny that's a, that's a great connection. I had not thought of that as a Tarantino moment, but it certainly is. And the other thing is brilliant about it is that uh, another way, which I think this film is really outstanding, is that it adds to Tony's characterization. Um, it makes Tony, I mean, because he starts out, you kind of think, well, he's just a type, um, but he's actually, he's complex. And he's kind of, even though you don't want to like him, um, he is kind of interesting, and anybody that shows interest, anybody that shows interest in art at the same time that he is a a murderer. I mean, to me, the the, the other parallel would be um, Michael Corleone, you know, at the baptism and affirming his religion supposedly while killing his his, his rivals. But actually, I kind of I kind of like Tony better because he he likes the theater. Uh, he's you know he's got this kind of artistic uh, uh, bent. So it's. It just, to me, it's just one of the ways in which the film creates um, much more complex characters than you necessarily uh, need or have seen in other films like this. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would, I would flat out say I find him, like I said, like you said, he's not somebody I want to spend time with. I'm terrified of him, and and you see his anger snap, especially when it comes to things like his sister. But he is charming. Like mm-hmm. there is this kind of thing where it's like, like even when he's at when he first meets Poppy at Lovo's apartment, like the little mannerisms he has. And there's just this sense of like, you might not like me now, but I am going to charm you. I'm going to do these things. And even the way he just brushes off, you know, whether he understands them or not, Poppy's little digs at his, you know, at his view of success. He's just like, like he's bulletproof in terms of those things, you know, like, 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 and, and that, that, that gives him a kind of charm. Um, uh, this movie had, I feel like, whether it's direct or or indirect filtered through other movies i just feel the dna of so many other things i've seen coming from move from this movie or movies like this i mean there's obvious in like scarface there's an obvious dna with that but um you know a movie like some like it hot they it's they take that saint valentine's day massacre um george raff's even involved with that right and then but they spin it in another direction of like it's almost like you take that scene, but we put two other characters hiding between the cars and then we go follow them. Um, uh, but, but more, more importantly, things like um, watching this next to the Godfather was interesting to see like, Oh, there's there, there, there are certain moments that I feel like, like, I feel like watching Tony get um, get killed at the end feels a lot like Sonny's death. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, even Sonny or, uh, or Tony with his sister, I feel like there's a lot of mm-hmm. uh, Sonny and Tony, have some similarities, but also, but not entirely, because I feel like, like Tony, Tony has a little bit of maybe a, multiple characters in the Godfather has little, little pieces of them in him. Um, but I think the most explicit thing that jumped out at me was when Tony goes after, I think it's when he goes after Mian, who we don't actually see this, but he's one of the other Northsiders mm-hmm. uh, or no, not, excuse me, one of the Southsiders who isn't, who isn't at the club when Lowell gives his speech. Um, Tony says that he's killed and then they open the newspaper and see that he's still alive, just like in the Godfather when Don Corleone gets hit. And then what does Tony do? He goes to the hospital to finish the work. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is like the Godfather. Like, this is what Michael it's as if Michael had seen Scarface and was like, oh, I know how this story plays out. So I'm going to go stop that from happening. Yeah, and, and, and that and that does become a trope. Uh, That's that's what happens to Jimmy Cagney's character in The Public Enemy. 
uh, he's he's in the hospital and he gets he gets taken out by the the, the rival gang. Um, yeah. And then and then uh, lastly, there's there's clear DNA between something like this and uh, I think we TV shows like Breaking Bad, um, uh, The Wire. I just there are lots of moments where I'm like, oh, I could. I'm sure David Chase is picking up some. Whether again, whether it's through this directly or indirectly through other things, um, there 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 are so many moments where I felt like. Oh, this this is part of this long tradition that I'm more familiar with the more recent iterations of, but it feels like it's all swimming in the same type of story. Actually, I will confess, Sam, that the other thing I did not know came from this film, uh, and to me is iconic. But I first met it in a, one of the Warner Brothers cartoons from the 1940s. Um, the great thing about those Warner Brothers cartoons is they are parodying all these 30s gangster films, which, of course, when I watched the cartoon, I had never seen. But it's the George Raft coin flipping, uh, which, of course, we get again when he spats Columbo in, in Some Like It Hot. Um, and I did, I did not know this was the origin of that particular uh, mannerism, which uh, Raft managed to, to perfect. And so I was when I saw the minute I saw that, I said, oh, that's where the coin flip in whatever Bugs Bunny cartoon that was. That's where that came from. Um, the things we haven't talked as much about are, are the two relationships that Tony has with mm-hmm. women. So with Poppy and then with Cheska, um, I think those are probably worth, um, yeah. worth talking about. I think the, the Cheska one ends up being, uh, more, uh, more interesting. Uh, the, there, there, there are lots of great scenes with Poppy. I really like that the way that that, um, that, that story plays out. And I love the the moment when they're at the club and she she picks up a cigarette and they both bring a light to her. And it's like, this is the, this is this moment where we're seeing her affiliation officially switch. And it's like it's like that's her declaration moment to Lovo of like, uh, you're out now. I am. I'm with this guy. And, and as in as in film noir, cigarettes and smoking are um, are substitutes for other uh, acts of intimacy. Uh, and so it's particularly it's particularly appropriate that the cigarette should be the the means of of signaling that change of affiliation. Yeah. And then one of my favorite performances in, the, in this movie is uh, Anne Dvorak, who plays Cheska. Uh, at, when she first appears in the movie, I didn't know if she was going to be much of a character or if this is just like mm-hmm. this little side story about Tony's sister. So then we can kind of interact with the mother. But that's actually a fairly rich, interesting story. Um, that 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 sort of plays out on the the margins of this, um, you know, even to the point where at the end when she goes to Tony's house and she has the gun on him and then doesn't shoot him, and Tony even asks her, you know, why didn't you shoot me? As if he's saying, I'm gonna die here. I almost would have rather that you shot me. I, mean, I, I, I it's, it's hard. It's an interesting question that he asks because he's. It's almost like he's not relieved that she did it because it means. This is going to continue, even though there he's in a spot that there's really no way out of. And, and yeah, and it, it was that relationship that I found to be one of the most interesting elements of the film. Again, it, it's not only partly his characterization, but partly the complex psychology. So you you know, because what you realize and what she realizes by the end of the film is that the reason they are in conflict with each other is not because they're different, but because they're the same. Mm-hmm. And 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 so it's like she's almost his 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 doppelganger. And he's also capable of a great degree of guilt. You know, when, when he discovers that he's, um, you know, he's, that he hasn't killed her, her lover. He's actually killed her husband, right? 
Um, and there's, there's all kinds of, you know, sexual jealousy going on. There's all kinds of hints of incest, at least that's what some critics think. So to me, that that's one more way in which he is a really interesting character. And their relationship is really, is really interesting in the sense that, you know, ultimately, um, ultimately there is that blood tie that neither, neither one of them can escape. And I think, I think it makes the, the, the mother character, the two scenes she's in interesting because she, we see her at a point where she, she feels like she's already lost her son and she's afraid she's going to lose her daughter. And there, I mean, it is funny because Tony seems on top of the world, but things don't seem to materially change for his mother at all, whether he's not interested in raising her up or she's not interested in being brought up. Um, with his money, she seems very she seems very concerned that Cheska is going to get pulled in, and she even gives her that warning of like, he's not giving you this money for nothing. At some point, you're going to get pulled into this. Yeah, um, she said. Yeah, she says he hurt you. He hurt you. He hurt everybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, so I, and, and so we get that we get that kind of immigrant story too. Of like, they are clearly like the first generation born here. So there is they. While, you know, his accent and things like this, you know, read in this way, like they both seem far more American than she does. Right. Like they seem far more mm. absorbing of of sort of of American culture. So unfortunately, they both die, I assume, or they both die. So we don't get to see what the next generation would be like, because that would be an interesting story as well. Well, originally, evidently, the mother was going to be more of a doting mother, more of a, more of the mother that you see in the public enemy and that we'll see in uh, next week. Um, so it's interesting that they turned her instead into this mother that takes the side of, uh, of, of the daughter against the supposedly corrupt son. But the fact is, she really doesn't understand her own children as well as she thinks uh, she does. So, uh, again, I absolutely thought this movie was outstanding uh do you have other things you want to talk about here well i i, I do want to say something about we, we we alluded to the other scene that kind of maybe got stuck in there for the for the censors but i just wanted to point out something about that um that that speech that uh that is given by the police chief when um you know, somebody in the, in the station says, well, he's a colorful character, right? He's, he's, he's irritated about the fact that the press That's, is it's a, the newspaper reporter, right? Yeah. 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 He says, colorful. What color is a crawling louse? That's the attitude of too many morons in this country. But, but what I like about the speech is he goes on to say, um, and, and I'm thinking about this as we did our recent run of Westerns, right? He goes on to say, uh, they had some excuse for glorifying our old Western bad men. They met in the middle of the street at high noon and waited for each other to draw. But these things sneak up and shoot a guy in the back and then run away. So, it's, so I, I love the notion that there is a criminal class that you can actually glorify appropriately because they have a kind of code of honor. But the problem with these guys is it's not just that they're bad guys, but they're 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 bad guys who fight don't fight fair. <laughs> I just they lack. I, honor, I really yeah. like that distinction. <laughs> Um, a, a couple other things, little or not little things, but I was also impressed by the car work in this movie. That mm. there's, there's a lot of, of um, car chase scenes, drive-by shootings. This seemed like it was probably an expensive movie to make. Um, they, they, they did a lot with um, did a lot with vehicles out on the street, and I thought that was pretty pretty impressive. And, and I've got to say just a couple more words about Ben Hecht. I mentioned him at the beginning that he was the screenwriter. Um, he, he won the first Oscar for his original, original screenplay in 1929. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for Joseph von Sternberg's Underworld, 
which uh, has a lot of actually plot elements similar to, to this film. But he he worked on um, I mean almost any really good Hollywood film you mentioned, he was either credited or uncredited for, including uh, among the things that we've seen already. Uh, he was part of uh, the writing team for for Shop Around the Corner. But he was he 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 was interesting because he kind of um, contemned the, the the film industry. He considered this kind of uh, it was a kind of a prostitution that he did in order to fund his real work of screenplays and, and, and journalism. So he would go to to Hollywood for just no more than uh, say two to eight weeks or, or uh, yeah two to twelve two to twelve weeks. Uh, and in one year, he actually, in that amount of time, this is back in the 1930s, he, he uh, earned a hundred thousand hmm. um, dollars. And so he just, he just, bang, and he, uh, he was a, he was just a genius. Sometimes he worked with Charles MacArthur. Sometimes he worked with Jules Furthman. Uh, but it's just interesting to me that um, he, he helped craft this really, this film that we were so appreciative of as a work of art. And yet he just considered it a job. Uh, in order to pay for what he really wanted to do. And he's one of the characters in the movie Mank that we meet when uh, mm-hmm. uh, when when they go visit uh, Mank's brother, like, and there's all the other writers yeah. around there. Ben Hecht is one of, that was my introduction to him. So I was like, oh, I know that name. Um, he was he was part of that, uh, part of that group of kind of literary people who were coming to Hollywood to make some money. So And, and, and you can argue, of course, that his contempt for Hollywood was only returning the same, uh, the same sentiment in, in kind because Hollywood is famously uh, dis- uh, contemptuous or dismissive of writers, even though there wouldn't be uh, a film without the writers. We kind of saw that a little bit in Sunset Boulevard as well. Right. I have to just one little piece from this movie that I, that I love. I love when you watch somebody, like when, when you're watching Gaffney Bowl, and you get to see the scorecard. Now, I realize that's in part so we can see the X on there, but I do need to point out he's bowling a 167 through eight frames, and then he throws two strikes. Yeah. So it's a shame that he died then because he had a great game going. <laughs> I mean, and he's I, looking and, at a 230 game probably. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I didn't think to check and see whether Boris Karloff was really a good, a good bowler. This makes me think of last week where we talked about, you know, Marlon Brando on ice skates and, and not the greatest skater in the world, but it was fun to see him on skates. I mean, Karloff looked like a, looked like a natural. He looked yeah. like he knew what he was doing with that ball. So. Absolutely. Uh, Barrett, what do you have for us for next week? You've been, you've been hinting at it. So yeah, I have been. So we're going to, we're going to end our run of gangster films with, uh, I can't believe Sam that we are almost a hundred movies into this podcast and we have still not done a film with one of my favorite Hollywood actors. I've mentioned many times, Jimmy Cagney. Uh, I mentioned that uh, my, my first taste of Cagney, my first taste really of classic Hollywood was Angels Dirty Faces. Still remember sitting in uh, the family room or the TV room as a child, as a young teen and encountering this film and just thinking it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. But we're not going to watch that one. We're going to watch a later Cagney film. Uh, we're going to watch another one of his signature performances. It's Cody Jarrett in White Heat uh, from uh, 1949. Great. I have not heard of this movie at all. I do love James Cagney. Um, I'm my James Cagney is more Yankee Doodle Dandy James yeah, Cagney, yeah, yeah. song and dance man James Cagney, but I I love him as a uh, as a screen presence, so I'm very excited for this. Uh, Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film. Uh, like I said, you wanted me to love Howard Hawks. I am one over. I really <laughs> really like this movie. This is this is something I will watch again because um, I just I I was shocked how 
uh, again, how propulsive it was and how uh, economical it was. And, and I really do think we didn't really talk a ton about performances. I think Paul Mooney is great in this movie as well. Um, so, uh, so, so thank you for recommending this and thank you for the great conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about white heat in the video store. Mm-hmm.